0: Welcome to the podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Dr Craig Ellis is an emergency physician in Hawkes Bay in New Zealand and is the Deputy Medical Director of St John's Ambulance Service in New Zealand and he joins me today to talk about uh, anaphylaxis. Welcome, Craig.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Craig, it strikes me that the incidence of uh, anaphylaxis doesn't appear to be the same in the community anymore. We don't seem to see as much of it as we we did. Is that uh, a true reflection of the incidence, do you think?
1: I think it's still there. I think there's a lot more treatment um, in the community, and a lot of these patients are um, certainly at the mild end of the spectrum. And you know, we can argue over whether you actually call the, the mild reactions anaphylaxis or not. Um, the group at the mild end of the spectrum are, are, are very rarely finding themselves getting to hospital. Uh, so the ambulance service, you know, is now treating within New Zealand anyway. Is now treating with um, oral antihistamines and treating a lot of the the minor end stuff. You know, just the itchy skin and the the, you know the tingling tongue and the you know rubby itchy runny eyes um, and in terms of the, the more severe um, end of the spectrum I think we are still seeing it it accounts for about um, you know about a third are really severe and the other two-thirds are moderate but I think because we're using reasonably aggressive um, use of adrenaline uh, the actual numbers getting to hospital who are you know critically ill um, you know the appearance is that there's not so many of them a lot of them are arriving essentially with a resolution of symptoms so um, they don't really make it through ED into the main part of the hospital and they certainly are not finding themselves to IC- into ICU at, sort of, to the same degree.
0: What are the major um, precipitants of anaphylaxis in this day and age?
1: Well, generally speaking, um, when you're looking at the community as a whole, obviously um, when you're talking about intensive care and, and anaesthesia, you're looking at a, a very specific population where, you know, by far and away, the majority—well, pretty much, almost close to 100%—of the anaphylaxis you see in, in that practice is medication-related. Um, but broadly speaking, within the community, um, what we're seeing is um, about 25% is due to medication, so related to you know medication in some form. 25% is due to venom, venomous animals. Well, you know, venomous insects predominantly, so ants, bees, wasps. Um, 25% due to food, and then there's a whole host of other things. Um, you know, from you know insect, fur, insect, sorry, um, you know, cat, dog, fur, hair, um, saliva, um, you know, pollens, uh, all things that are just floating around, um, together with a whole lot of patients who we also see um, where we don't actually know what the trigger is, and th- that group together represent about the other quarter. So, you know, the, the big three are, you know, medications, venom, and food.
0: The ones that present without an obvious precipitant, is it often possible to determine what that is in follow-up testing?
1: I I think there's some people who, you know, would say that it it can be. Um, There's there's the sophistication of the, you know, the immunological testing that that can be done now um, is is starting to improve significantly, you know, over the last decade. It it has started to get a lot more precise than it was, where it was very barn door. Um, So, yeah, I I, I think you can say that to a degree, um, but it's how hard you dig. You know, for a simple case of anaphylaxis where um, we don't have a cause, you know, do we embark on a potentially a very complicated testing regimen to try and find what the actual cause is? Um, it becomes a you know a risk benefit, you know, cost benefit analysis, you know, in terms of how how deep are dig looking for a cause?
0: One of the more common scenarios that uh, people listening will have encountered is uh, anaphylaxis that occurs in theatre. What are the common agents that precipitate anaphylaxis in that setting?
1: Uh, by far, within as I said before, you know, medication obviously in that setting accounts for. The, the, by far and away, the bulk um, of the anaphylaxis that occurs. So, neuromuscular blocking drugs um, would be the really big one there. Um, pro- followed, probably followed by um, antibiotics. Um, and more and more now, we're sort of starting to see problems as well. It's the, the problems have probably been around for a long time, but they're starting to be recognised in terms of the, the use of chlorhexidine. And obviously, that's a, another you know, risk-benefit thing. You know, the extensive use of it because it's a very good, um, you know, antiseptic. Uh, versus the fact that you know there are a number of people who are having anaphylactic reactions to it. And obviously there's a group um, who are predisposed and at risk to latex allergies.
0: There's, a, I guess, another hidden group potentially, isn't there? We, If it happens in theatre, then presumably it's going to happen in intensive care with a similar incidence, but we may not recognise it because of other uh, issues that are going on. Do we know much about the natural history of anaphylaxis in critical care?
1: Um the short answer is no. So it's not fantastically well studied. I think, as, as you allude to, you know, these patients just tend to get lost in the fact that they are critically ill with, you know, multi-system disease. You know, there's obviously two groups when you're looking at the intensive care population. There's the group that are admitted to um, intensive care with anaphylaxis or, you know, following a cardiac arrest due to anaphylaxis, where there's clearly a diagnosis when they're arriving in the unit, and you know, obviously that has ongoing management um, implications. You know, both from The fact that some patients have a very long um, monophasic response, you know, and that that the the reaction continues for a number of hours, so they require repeated doses of adrenaline, they require high-dose infusions, they require a lot of fluids, um, versus the group who may have ended up there because um, they were unwell, significantly unwell, and now they're starting to get better, and, you know, who have the... A biphasic response, and obviously in the literature currently, there's a reasonable amount of discussion around biphasic responses, and um, I might come back to that later if there's a bit of time. So that's the the first group. The group who are actually admitted with the anaphylaxis, and the second group is within a group of patients who are already there, who are in the same way that within anaesthetic practice, you know, they're, they're having an anaesthetic or they're being exposed to the same agents for, you know, for intubation or their ongoing sedation or their, um, their other other supportive functions that are going on. Um, And I think in that group, it can be very hard to tease out who's actually having an anaphylactic reaction. Uh, Generally speaking, um, what I think most of the experts in this area would say is if you have anyone who has unexplained hypotension or tachycardia alone, you know, so in isolation, out of the blue, um, or related to a drug administration, you know, so a uranium you know, so rocuronium is, you know, is a very common cause, and it's also, you know, very common usage. So, you know, sudden onset hypotension or tachycardia or new bronchospasm, you know, increase in ventilator pressure where you're not expecting it, um, and there's been a recent administration of drugs. I think you have to start leaning heavily towards whether it's, you know, anaphylaxis or not. We talk a lot about you know, the rash and the skin changes that people get with anaphylaxis. But, you know, upwards of 20% people don't, twenty of people don't actually have a rash. Um, or if they are going to develop it, they develop it a little bit later when their circulatory system's recovering and they're starting to get better perfusion in their skin. So um, up front, there's a big group who won't have um, skin symptoms to guide you that that's what's going on.
0: Now, as you mentioned, there, there's been increasing discussion about the biphasic uh, presentation of anaphylaxis. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know there, there was a, a very large retrospective study that came out last year in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, um, where they went through I can't remember exactly two and a half, three thousand patients, and they identified a clinically significant um, biphasic um, reaction rate of um, of less than one percent, so only about a, you know a quarter of one percent. And the essential conclusion from that article was that we're, we're overcalling biphasic response, and um, you know we probably don't need to worry about it. Um, and that conflicts slightly with um, a really nice, so the um, you know a nice study um, led led by Simon Brown in Western Australia, um, where over around 12 hospitals I think they collected um, close to 500 prospective anaphylaxis presentations uh, to the department, and they they looked at how they responded clinically, collected a whole lot of mediator samples, and then part of the study obviously was seeing the numbers that had um, a biphasic uh, reaction. And in that group, um, you know, out of the 500 or 470 something, I think, um, they they identified um, 29 um, delayed reactions, and um, you know, 22, I think, of them occurred within about four or five hours. So that's the, you know, that's obviously that's where, you know where the four hour number, um, you know, probably comes from in you know recent um, guidelines and things. And the remainder, um, you know, the other seven, they all developed it within 10 hours. And only two had severe reactions, but they were two that also had severe reactions the first time round. So from that, I think, from certainly from a, you know an emergency department perspective, I think we need to say that those that have you know life-threatening anaphylaxis uh, is a group that probably should be watched for twelve hours or so before they're discharged. Um, but it obviously conflicts slightly. You know, we've got the Annals article. Um, you know, it's big. You know, it's really big. You know, it's nearly three thousand. Um, but it's retrospective um, versus, you know, the Australian um, research which was done prospectively. So, um, you know, if you're going to apply the, the laws of evidence-based medicine, then we probably should lean to supporting the prospective data a bit more. I think.
0: And just to clarify, these are patients who have initially presented with with uh, quite significant symptoms, and then being treated, and then have a rebound phenomenon. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So exactly. So they presented with with anaphylaxis. Um, you know, some of them moderate, some of them severe, and then within a period of time. Um, so they've, and they've been treated and the symptoms have gone away, uh, but they've deteriorated a little bit down the track. And obviously that has implications for patients who are, you know, have been admitted to, you know, to the ICU on the basis of their, their initial episode um, when they have a subsequent or if they have a subsequent deterioration.
0: So, Craig, let's take a, a classic example from most intensivists of a patient who's been induced in theatre and has had a, a reaction presumably to rock uranium, and then they're admitted to the ICU after abandoning the case. What's the current management of those sorts of patients, do you think?
1: So, from a management point of view, so... I think people have traditionally been, um, well, not it's not really the case in um, anaesthesia or in kids. To be honest, but you know, in, within medicine and pre-hospital care, outside of those environments, there's been a tendency to be a little, little bit scared of adrenaline. Um, but the treatment is simply adrenaline and more adrenaline and more adrenaline um, as as they need it from a from a cardiovascular support um, point of view, um, along with fluid. So the treatment for anaphylaxis is fluid and adrenaline and as much as, of it as they need. Um, you know we've got hung up with um, you know giving steroids and giving antihistamines but the reality is that um, if you know giving those drugs delays getting to what's really needed which is adrenaline and the fluids um, we really should just be moving past them and going you know straight to you know where the money is if you like um, so in terms of coming back from theater you know what to expect um, you're likely to expect that probably um, unless it was a very short-lived reaction they may well be on an adrenaline infusion um, you would expect for the majority of patients that you know they can be weaned off that um, reasonably quickly, you know, over sort of minutes to hours, rather than having to be on it for a prolonged period of time. Um, they may well come back again, having a lot of having had a lot of fluid, and they still require a little bit of blood pressure support, um, you know, in terms of more fluid boluses. Um, almost certainly in theatre, they will have had steroids, um, as I alluded to before. You know, the evidence base for giving steroids is is really really low. Um, And while most people still recommend it, it's not a priority. It's just something that, you know, people have looked at asthma and said, well, asthma and anaphylaxis are quite similar, so if steroids work in asthma, they must be good in anaphylaxis. And they sort of, you know, pulled it over, you know, in that regard. There's also been some thought that, you know, if you give steroids, you dampen down that biphasic response, but the evidence doesn't support that. So um, adrenaline fluids would, would be the mainstay.
0: Um, Craig, for the patients who do um, have the misfortune of undergoing a cardiac arrest in the setting of anaphylaxis, is there anything specific about their management?
1: Yeah, I can't can't comment on sort of the in hospital management of, of the cardiac arrests, but you know we've been looking more and more at how the ambulance service have been managing these patients, and, and looking about how they're managed in the emergency department when they do arrest, and there's there's quite a stark, you know, th- th- this h- hasn't published research, so at the moment it you know still falls in the realm of opinion, but when you start looking at you know the data we've got about. 30 people now who've had community cardiac arrests um, presumed due to anaphylaxis. And we see a really stark relationship between those who had high-dose adrenaline and lots of fluid um, and survived, and those who didn't. So the group who had a milligram or two of adrenaline and no fluid um, essentially all died. The group that had six, seven, eight milligrams of adrenaline and two, three, four, five, six liters of adrenaline you know the vast majority of those survived. So there's, there's very much a dichotomy between um, not giving adrenaline and, um, and not giving big volumes of fluids and, and death from an anaphylaxis-related, you know, a cardiac arrest-related anaphylaxis. And so while I think you know, all the organisations that put out guidelines and talk about this do stress the importance of giving adrenaline and giving volume, um, I'm not sure it has quite enough emphasis. You know, this is a group where they, if they have cardiac arrest, they really do need a lot of adrenaline, and they do need a lot of fluid. And I think that it's going to have some impact on survival. Um, and when you start looking at, you know, alternatives to adrenaline um, within a cardiac arrest, um, I think, you know, for whatever, they've had a lot of adrenaline. Um, there seems to be, from a case report point of view, a number of patients who's had, who've had metaraminol added into the adrenaline um, who have... Who have then got, um, you know, ROSC and uh, you know several, you know, survival to hospital discharge. So there, there's there's a lot more going on than we currently understand. Um, but I think what we can say is that they, they need a lot of adrenaline, they need a lot of fluid, and you probably need to consider whether they need a you know another agent, whether that's more adrenaline or Um, You know, there may be another agent that is useful um, in managing their resuscitation.
0: One of the conundrums that often confronts people in intensive care is the airway management of those with anaphylaxis, particularly if they've been uh, intubated in theatre and knowing when to extubate them. Do you have any advice on that?
1: Um, on generally speaking, you know, those patients who have the the reaction to you know an intravenous medication, um, they they deteriorate quickly and they get better quickly. Um, so you can argue that there's a reasonable case for early extubation once their parameters have normalised, and um, there's no reason to leave um, the tube in there, um, and you know, you know they can proceed to extubation. Um, if you you look back at you know Simon Brown's um, paper, uh, what he's shown is you know out of 500 odd people they found um, two patients who had severe reactions, who had a second severe reaction within 10 hours. So if you're leaning on the conservative side, and their initial reaction was very life-threatening. Um, then you could argue it's reasonable to leave them um, intubated for you know for 12 hours or so um, and then extubate them. Um, but understanding that you know Simon's group was a was a you know all comers population presenting to an emergency department. So the group we're talking about coming to ICU from theatre after an anaesthetic reaction is um, probably a little bit more special in that regard. And uh, you know once they're better, they probably are genuinely better.
0: Are there any guidelines for how long therapy should have been weaned off for before going through with those sorts of things?
1: Um, I'm not aware of... Uh, ANSCA um, has a, a, cl- a clear guideline around the management of intraoperative, intra-operative um, anaphylaxis. I'm not sure if they make any statements about you know, how long the care should go on for. Um, but pragmatically speaking, uh, generally, um, you know, once you've seen someone respond... Um, to, you know, adrenaline and fluids and, you know, the bronchospasm is resolved, the hypoxia is resolved, Um, you know, you can genuinely start looking at whether, you know, it's time to extubate them Um, once, you know, you're no longer needing um, the same amounts of adrenaline, you're no longer needing the same amounts of fluid um, and we're looking at, um, you know, minutes to hours rather than hours to days.
0: So in the case of a patient who's had an anaphylactic reaction to an unidentified source, whether that be in the community or in, in theatre, what sort of follow-up do you recommend?
1: Um, so I think, you know, certainly if it's in theatre, uh, most um, most hospitals um, have reasonably established, you know, so obviously, you know, uh, anaphylaxis to anaesthetic agents have, has been around for as long as, you know, there's been anaesthetic agents. So most hospitals and anaesthetic departments have, you know, very entrenched, you know, follow-up plans around this, um, usually uh, starting off in an anaesthetic clinic, um, an anaesthetic um, anaphylaxis clinics, sometimes they're run by clinical immunologists or allergists, but frequently they're brought back to their own clinics. Um, so if it happens within um, an anaesthetic setting, um, the follow-up's normally reasonably robust um, from from that point of view. Uh, when it happens in the community or through the emergency departments, sometimes the follow-ups are a little bit more sketchy. Um, and I think it very much depends on your your local general practice, um, you know, your pr- local primary care infrastructure. So in New Zealand, and you know, in Hawke's Bay in particular, uh, we have um, you know a very strong general practice network, and we feel very comfortable having um, the majority of patients uh, who present with anaphylaxis followed up with their general practitioner rather than referral to a specific immunology or allergy clinic. Um, but in some cities, it's very common practice; everyone is seen by an allergist or a clinical immunologist. Um, I think what we know, um, obviously, about anaphylaxis is that you know once it's happened once, it can happen again. So these patients are at risk of having you know, a second, you know, subsequent life-threatening um, anaphylactic episode. So something needs to be done. Um, so just discharging them out into the ether um, with no clear follow-up is, is a recipe for disaster. Um, whether that's sending them back to their GP or to a specific clinic, I think uh, you, know, you can argue the point of which is better. Um, what they do also need, though, when they leave, you know, when it's to a neuromuscular blocking agent, um, you can argue they don't actually need to go home with an EpiPen because the allergic reaction, you know, the agent causing the reaction is easy enough to avoid. Um, But for the majority of patients where the actual um, agent is, is not clear, or um, they continue to be at risk of being exposed to it again. Um, they all need to actually physically leave hospital with a uh, prescription for an EpiPen or an Anapen, so some sort of adrenaline auto-injector, and they need a clear um, action plan. And um, you know, the Immunology Society um, you know, produces some very nice action plans that detail at what point and at, you know what level of symptoms patients should be self-administering adrenaline. And I think it's, it's verging on and irresponsible to be discharging patients who've clearly had anaphylaxis without it, you know some sort of auto-injector and a clear plan.
0: Craig, what is the role of tryptase in um, in these sorts of patients in terms of following up their reactions?
1: Um, well, I think the short answer would be it would depend who you talk to. Um, it's within anaesthetic practice, um, you know, measuring serum typically serum tryptase uh, at the time um, and over the next you know, subsequent two to three hours and particularly looking at the deltas, so the change in the tryptase from you know, one measurement to the other um, is very common practice and it's certainly recommended by um, ANSCA. So I'd say the standard of care with an anaesthesia would be to measure um, serum tryptase. The value of it, I think, genuinely is open to discussion um, you know, and, and a degree of debate. I think for the the average person presenting to an emergency department who's been stung by a bee, uh, who you know three minutes later developed you know an all over rash, uh, then became you know dizzy and felt like they were going to faint and started to have trouble breathing, um, who's presented and been given adrenaline and they've got better, um, there's no value or use whatsoever in doing a mass cell triptase in that person. Uh, you know we've got a clear allergen, we know exactly what happened, um, and. We know about Marcel triptase is that whether it goes up or not is somewhat unpredictable. So the patient may, you know, has definitely had an anaphylaxis, um, but the Marcel triptase may or may not go up. Um, so if you're looking at the punters that coming off the street, uh, you can argue, what's the point? So it's, you know, it's, it's a tossing a coin test um, in a patient who clearly has the diagnosis and is going to need the appropriate follow-up, regardless of whether the triptase is raised or raised or not. Um, within anesthetic practice, um, you know, there's some discussion around um, because it's, it's more likely to be raised with um, an intra- the administration of an intravenous agent causing the anaphylaxis, um, you, you know, and, and because there's so many other things often going on at the induction of anesthesia which can potentially cause um, the patient to get, go into a state of cardiovascular collapse, uh, having the added reassurance of a raised or, you know, a significant delta change within the triptase Um, you know, probably has value. But, you know, in that sense, they're different populations because, you know, the average person stung by a bee is different to the average person who's just had, you know, five or six drugs in quick succession at the induction of their anaesthesia.
0: Finally, Craig, you mentioned there, uh, very appropriately, that we often have a choice of agents that could potentially be responsible for this, and it's difficult to know exactly which one. Are there... um, Uh, what is the risk of cross-reactions between the agents that potentially could be responsible? Because it strikes me that between the incidents and proper follow-up testing, there may be occasions when patients need emergent anaesthetics.
1: Um, Well, I think the the cross-reactivity is concerningly high. Um, There's been a number of studies done, and it looks to be, certainly with neuromuscular blocking agents, sitting around about 50 to 60% in terms of cross-reactivity. And we used to say that sucks was the you know the worst agent, but you know the evidence now is that, that rocuronium is now taking over as the most common cause of um, neuromuscular blocking related um, anaphylaxis. Um, so you know someone just because if someone's had um, an allergic reaction to um, rocuronium, uh, the cross reactivity in terms of you know changing them, them to vec. Um, you know can still be relatively high, so you know a good going anaphylaxis to rock, uh, you know fifty to sixty percent risk that they're going to have a good going anaphylaxis to vec, um, although obviously certain agents you know sort of pink and vec um, are less you know uh, normally less problematic than you know the sacs and the rock, but you know there's still a significant risk there and um, obviously when you you start delving outside of of or out into the population a, you know, we're finding more and more in terms of cross reactivity. You know, between you know those people that are allergic to to latex, also be you know having the same reaction if they have avocado or kiwi fruit. You know, patients that are allergic to you know to apples with cross reactivity with you know birch pollen, um other pollens, cross reactivity between you know peanuts and other you know other different types of legumes. You know, it's a similar protein, and obviously the similar protein causes a you know similar binding pattern, and then obviously the cascade that causes the anaphylaxis. In terms of, of looking at, the, you know, the, the numbers in hospital, you know, that so, so patients broadly, um, you know, who are having reactions to medications, um, then antibiotics win um, hands down, you know, obviously because uh, so much more of them is prescribed, you know, in comparison to a neuromuscular blocker. So patients who are either in the community or they're just on a hospital ward um, and prescribed antibiotics, um, you know, that wins hands down from a medication point of view. Um, in terms of the cross-reactivity, um, it's not as as great as we always thought. Um, you know, and there's lots of you know lots of articles and commentary, you know, talking about the cross-reactivity between cephalosporins and penicillins, and you know, uh, saying how high it is, and up to 50% and 70%. You know, when you were looking at the literature, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I think looking at it now, the cr- the cross-reactivity rates are, are well down into to single figures, and from a first generation cephalosporin to a, a newer penicillin. Um, you know, it's it's going to be, you know, well into single figures. And, but I think the key point is that it's still there. Um, so some some people seem to have sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater and said, you know, there's no cross-reactivity between antibiotics. You know, it was all because, you know, they used the same bats to make the penicillin that they made the Keflosporins out of, and that's where the cross-reactivity came from. And, you know, it wasn't actually due to a genuine cross-reactivity. Uh, I think um, you need to... You know that there is a genuine cross reactivity. It's just that it's uncommon. So, you know, someone who has a, a good going penicillin anaphylaxis who's given a third generation cephalosporin um, is unlikely to have um, an anaphylactic reaction to that. But it's still a possibility. So it has to be part of your decision making, and you have to think it through um, when you're going to use that drug. So it shouldn't just be a foregone conclusion that you know that cross reactivity was exaggerated and it doesn't exist. Um, it was probably exaggerated, but it definitely does exist.
0: In the context of anti venom um, administration, is, uh, the, the concept of um, prophylactic treatment of uh, potential anaphylaxis is often raised. Is there any uh, good science that guides decision making on that?
1: Um, as, as best as I understand it, there's, you know, because uh, fortunately in New Zealand um, we don't have large numbers of, of, of venomous animals. Um, in comparison to you. So we, we don't, you know, my own practice here, I don't use a lot of antivenom. But my understanding of it is that um, the, the main reason for, you know, steroid use and trying to pretreat um, when you're giving antivenom is, is to try and prevent this, this the serum sickness, you know, 10 days down the track. So another um, delayed um, sensitivity reaction, but not the same type of delayed sensitivity reaction, which anaphylaxis is. Um, and, like I say, coming back to the steroids, there's no evidence that, that steroids in and of themselves prevent anaphylaxis actually happening or, or changes its severity. So I think in this group that the goal is to reduce the serum sickness rather than the anaphylaxis. I, I'm not sure um, what's been traditionally taught, but you know my reading of the literature would be that you know there's, there's no clear relationship you know in terms of um, early steroid administration or pre-treatment with steroids in terms of stopping um, the anaphylaxis. Again, there's some evidence, you know, giving an oral antihistamine may reduce, you know, the itching and things like that that are associated with it. Um, but in terms of pre-treating to stop it actually occurring, um, I don't think there's good evidence that that works. And the main reason seems to be to prevent the, you know, the serum sickness seven to ten days down the track.
0: And if anaphylaxis does develop in that setting, then it would be managed along standard lines.
1: Exactly. And I think that's, that's, you know, one of the biggest messages, um, you know, that we want medical, you know, staff and pre-hospital staff to understand is, you know, the, the treatment is the same. You know, people die because of delays in getting adrenaline into them. Um, you know, that's been repeatedly shown, you know, in a, you know, several post-mortem studies, you know, where they looked at the deaths and showed that, showed that the groups who had no adrenaline were much more likely to die. Um, it's shown, in the, you know, looking at the, the pre-hospital data in terms of who evolves to having cardiac arrest. You know, the patients who have had several doses of adrenaline very rarely arrest. It's the patients who've had no adrenaline um, that go on to do it. So, you know, the big issue is, is we don't want any delays in getting adrenaline to, into, into these patients. Um, you know, the risk of adrenaline is overstated. Um, you know, IM adrenaline is still the first-line recommendation, you know, for non-anesthetic practice, um, you know, I, the only caveat to that I'd say is if the, you know the patient's already hypotensive or looking you know like they're poorly perfused, then the IM is sort of just a temporising measure while you get some IV access going so you can give them um, you know an IV infusion. Uh, but adrenaline, adrenaline, adrenaline. You know, and it sounds it sounds a little bit like I'm harping on, but you know, consistently that you know it's delays in getting to adrenaline that you know causes adverse outcomes.
0: Craig Ellis, thank you very much for uh, helping us shine some light on this important problem
1: great thanks very much
0: Todd. if you enjoyed today's podcast why not check out our websites critique and crit nurse our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts journal clubs online presentations modules and much much more You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique. Making critical care education easier.